Listen to this podcast or I'll gut you. Welcome back, Horror Hounds, to Ghostman and Rivera's Horror Show podcast. Today we have Adam Caesar on the podcast. Adam Caesar is the author of awesome indie horror novels like Tribesmen, Video Night, The First One You Expect, The Con Season, and The Summer Job, as well as the YA novel Clown in a Cornfield and the upcoming Clown in a Cornfield 2, Friendo Lives. He runs a popular horror movie and book-themed YouTube channel called Project Black T-Shirt and was named one of the 10 sexiest writers of 2021 by the film Daily. Please welcome Adam Caesar to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm so, so glad you, 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 you included the sexiest writer thing because that's, that's <laughs> oh, what I yeah. put on my resume. Yeah, yeah on every, everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it's great to meet you guys. Um, typically, I've done... Um, I've done it not not that I'm like a podcast expert, but I've done a few podcasts now and uh, to talk about Clown Two. But no one's uh, no one's introduced me with the old books. No one's introduced me with uh, Video Night and Tribesman and uh, Oh yeah, Oh yeah. So James is holding up right now. I, I appreciate that because a lot of what a lot of what I'll hear and it's oh he's got a stack. A lot of what I'll hear and it's <laughs> it's a weird thing about um, kind of switching over to writing YA, which. I don't consider it much of a switch. And we'll probably talk about that where it's like, I, I don't write any all that much differently other than to be concerned with teen concerns. Um, but because this book is like, like you said, those are indie books and the, this book is in Barnes and Noble and all these different stores and books million. Uh, so when people like get in touch with me, they're like, I read your book, uh, the like singular, which is like, Oh man, I'm glad they read it. But it's like to hear like, like 12 years of like publishing and then to hear like i read your book it's like, oh, so many other books. <laughs> so um how did your uh fan horror fandom start did it start in childhood and uh what kicked off your love for the genre uh it's yeah it's one of those things i can't even it's such a hard question to answer because i i can't even remember and I'm, i i mean i i imagine a lot of horror fans are similarly similarly um where I just can't even remember exactly what kicked it off because I, it was so, it happened so young. And I think um, with us and, and younger people might not have the same experience, but with, with us, it, for me, it was going to the video store and, and seeing, uh, we had a, um, we, in our supermarket, we had a little video rental like kiosk. Um, so like kind of a mini video store in the, in the path mark where I grew up on Long Island. Uh, so like, even before like my parents were taking me to the video store, like incidentally, I was seeing the kind of horror section of this mini um, uh, rental place in the grocery store. So that's like, those are kind of the first images I can remember, just the, the kind of the posters and the cover art of the, and just always being uh, drawn to that. Like I like, I, I consider myself a cinephile and a movie fan. Like I enjoy every kind of movie. And I, I, I consider myself a reader cause I, I, I you know, I, studied English for many years and um, I don't only read horror and I don't only watch horror, but those are so clearly my main interests. Those are so clearly what I'm most passionate about. So yeah, just kind of forever, if that makes sense for as long as I can remember. Um, yeah. I, I think me and Mike yeah. are kind of the same. We're both 
like avid horror fans, but we watch other things besides horror and we both enjoy reading a lot as well. Could you talk about your earliest writing experiences? Like what's what's the first time you, you realized that you wanted to be a writer and how did that evolve into being into writing novels? Hmm. I um I I and if there are any young people listening, if you're um if you're in middle school or high school and they offer electives and there there's like uh creative writing electives, it's not just uh it's not just kind of a, a fun, easy class to take. I would I would highly, highly recommend if you're at all um interested in um in being creative even if you're not interested in like even if you're an artistic person but you're not you don't consider yourself a writer i would i would take those creative writing classes because they're they're really they help you in kind of every aspect of your life because it's writing is just communication and writing is just like all right i have this idea but how do i communicate it to a person so um those are kind of my earliest other than like i used to make comic books when i was like a kid kid like i would just that's what that's what the crayon sets were used for was like i was a huge comics fan so like i never wanted to draw like just a normal like picture with a house and sunshine and mommy and daddy i just always was drawing i was always drawing panels i was always adding like panels (laughs) to things so like that those are maybe my quote-unquote earliest writing experiences but like writing short stories and, and feeling like oh i can do this i can write like prose fiction um, began in uh, either middle school or high school. I, I think I took a number of creative writing electives, but I love the uh, the kind of feedback I got there. And not, it wasn't always positive. Like I know I know that I wanted I was writing horror stories and I was writing scary stories. Um, you know, post Columbine, uh, uh, middle school and high school, and wanting to write kind of violent, morbid things. And never nothing nothing ever that got me in trouble. But I know I know that there are some teachers that are like you're pretty morbid this is on the line like um but uh it's just always been interested in it so okay did you get a lot of like encouragement from teachers or from your parents despite the fact that um some people might have considered it morbid at the time um like i said with the teachers sometimes a little pushback but always they were always very encouraging um i had a uh, i had a teacher in high school uh mr hodges who was who ran a uh uh ran a um a, a kind of a, the av club basically um it was like film and tv production i think was like the name of the the class and it was there was no film it was just it was just mini tv cameras and he was very encouraging of like oh go shoot a horror movie kind of thing um and then my parents are like my parents are the most supportive parents in the world um i could have said i wanted to do anything i could have said i wanted to be a bank robber and they would have gotten gotten me like the like safe cracking kit um they're very very supportive <clears throat> um and yeah i think and i think even though neither of them are like my mom is a is a horror fan my mom like is the person that introduced me to like texas chainsaw massacre and, and these things um when i was probably too young but neither of them are like horror fans like us you know what i mean and my dad's not a horror fan at all but they're just both know like this is what the boy likes support it um uh, be supportive of it um so which i think is a, a good way to be as a parent now that now that i'm a dad uh, first time dad I'm, I'm looking towards them and being like that's how i want to raise my kid <laughs> so uh what was the journey like when you uh you became a writer you started writing stories and then it evolved into books so how did you end up getting published how, how did that come about um i think like a lot of writers i i was like oh i want to write novels i want to be a novelist like let me start writing a novel um so video night i started writing video night before even like i was before I had even kind of sent out <laughs> James holding up uh, visual aids here, um, 
before I'd even started kind of sending out short stories and stuff like that, I was, I was drafting video night and I, uh, I had gone to a, um, I'd gone to a convention uh, that's not around anymore. It just recently stopped. It's the rock and shock convention in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, um, which it uh, was a great convention because it was like combination convention and uh, concert series. But um, Jack Ketchum was a guest at one of those earliest ones. And he was, he was always at them. Um, and I think I'd, I'd, I'd kind of asked him for advice the first year I'd met him um, and he, and, he was very gracious and I was literally a kid. I don't even think I could like legally drink. I think it was like, I was like 18 or 19. And he, he said like, Oh, what you should be doing is you should be focusing on things you can finish. You should be focusing on uh, short stories and sending them out and getting feedback that way. Um, just cause he, like the way he put it, he's like, if you're not married to it. Um, and I, and that was actually great advice. Cause that's, that's when I started doing more short stories as I was drafting video night, the first, the first early version of video night, which is kind of very different than the book that ended up coming out. But um, uh, yeah, I just, it was a lot of rejection at first. And then when you get that little validation of like seeing your name in print, even if it's like not that much money um, it's uh, incredibly validating and makes you want to keep going. So I don't do a ton of short stories these days uh, because I love writing novels. Uh, but when I'm asked to do them, like if I'm invited to anthologies, I'll usually say yes. Um, it's just fun practice because it's a very different format. Telling telling a short story or a satisfying short story is so different from a novella or a novel. They're just completely different formats. Yeah, that make, that makes sense. Uh... One of the things that I find interesting about your your novels is that they um they kind of come remind me a little bit of something like Scream, kind of in the sense that uh it's obviously coming from somebody who's like consumed a lot of horror movies and a lot of horror uh, uh literature, and a lot of your characters are either like horror fanatics or they work in your uh, or they work in the film industry, and the progression of your writing is interesting because your early work tended to focus more on the positive aspects of fandom, like in something like Video Night. And then some of your later work, like the con season, and uh, especially the first one you expect, that one really explores a darker side of like horror fandom. The first one you under you expect actually made me a little bit uncomfortable because it reminded me a little of myself. So I'm not a toxic person like the main character that <laughs> made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. So um, what inspired kind of like the switch in tone or the switch in like concentrating on more of like the negative aspects of horror fandom? I've, I've never been asked something approaching that. And I think that's, a, it's an incredible insight. Um, so I have to take, I have to think for a second. I don't have like a set answer for okay, that, sorry. but um, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think it just became, so what's interesting and, and to, to kind of, because James, you read them all, but yeah. um, your listeners may not have. Clown of the Cornfield and Clown of the Cornfield 2, because they are YA books, um, I kind of went through this whole phase that, that, that James is describing this idea of like, I want to write about movies and I want to write about horror movies and all the different aspects of writing about horror movies. Um, and then with Clown in the Cornfield, when I knew it was going to be a young adult book, I knew that, that you know, these, the, the kids picking it up may not have any frame of reference for uh, what we're talking about. And I was like, you know what, in, in these two, they're going to be kind of about horror movies, but we're never going to talk about horror movies. In them. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a, cause it's, so it's, I see them as kind of a continuation of that, of that kind of artistic body of work you're talking about. But even though when people pick them up, they're going to be like, this, this has nothing to do with horror movies. These are just like kind of meat and potato slashers in, in some weird way. Um, but I consider them like the next phase of that thing. So I think 
to answer your question, why I went from, I guess, probably the most positive and most kind of healthy portrayal of horror movies is, is Video Nights. So that's the first one. Um, and then I think things get a little bit more complicated in, in, in Tribesmen because I think that it deals with like the exploitation to make an exploitation movie, like the, the capital E exploitation movie. Um, and then you're right. I ended up with um, <laughs> the, the con season uh, and, and uh, the first one you expect, which are like book length subtweets in a way. Um, and I, and I think that's, I think I, I hope you read both of those books that are, that are kind of a little bit more dark and a little bit more um, pointing out like the problems with fandom and see that I do love this stuff. I still always love this stuff. I never, I never dislike horror, but I can get, I think there's just a fascinating, there's fascinating aspects to fandom that, um, so to answer your question, I never got, I never got like, I never got a chip on my shoulder. I'm never like, Oh, now I'm pissed off. Cause I've been in the horror scene for too long. It's time to like take them down a peg. That was never my intention. I never, um, I never wanted to do that. I think more of it's, more of its confidence in my own storytelling and more of its confidence in my own ability to like, if I wrote cons, the con season first, or if I wrote first when you expect first and release that, I think people would be like, look at this curmudgeon, like, look at this asshole. Like who's he to like kind of talk about my scene or my genre in this way. Uh, I think it's almost like if you read video and if you read them in order, you'll see that I'm very much coming from a place of, uh, I love horror movies and I, and I, and I, and in a lot of respects, I, I love and respect the people who make horror movies, but there's also stuff about fandom. And I think in, in the first thing you expect deals with um, uh, micro budget filmmakers and, and, and folks that like, it's, it's not any real person, but it's, it's, it's based on a, an amalgam of people. Like I've met at cons and stuff like that. And it's like, you can love horror, but you can be like, Oh, this is a little sleazy, like <laughs> in certain aspects. And I think, like you said, James, like um, Tony, the main character of of the first one you expect, like I have him say like a horrible thing that I would never say, like on the first page of that book. Um, and I think I do that on purpose. It's a, it's like a, it's a word. It's like a slur that I've like never used and engaged with in any of my other books. Uh, but I think it's like it's important that you establish right off the bat, like you're not supposed to like this guy. <laughs> Like this guy's like a scumbag, but at the same, at the same respect, um, in the same respect, uh, I think there's parts of all horror fans that can kind of probably see themselves in what this guy, cause we share a common interest. So, um, yeah, so th I don't know, that was rambling, but I don't know if that really answered your question. But like I said, I, I think it's more of a confidence in my own writing and a confidence in the people that read my books to be able to like, okay, you get that I'm like, that I love horror, right? Like, you know, I, don't want you, I don't want you thinking I like, I hate horror. Or I'm like super jaded about things. I just mm -hmm. wanted to write books that deal with other aspects of horror filmmaking and horror movies. Um, Cause I, I think I can do that for the rest of my career is write about horror movies and not repeat myself. I mean, I, I think that it's kind of cool that you tackle like some of the more difficult aspects of fandom because I feel like most people and understandably because a lot of us are very protective of it and we want to put ourselves in a positive light that you're willing to go to a different place and show things that most authors probably would be uncomfortable, especially if they're trying to promote horror or promote the horror scene. Yeah, yeah. And I'm very, and I very much am like protective of the horror scene and want people to love what we love and want to kind of proselytize and grow the fan base and and things like that and and but i also think there's like 
you, you have to admit that like not everything is great and not everything is healthy. You can't just prate with a broad brush and be like, it's, it's in our genre. I love it. It's like, no, you can still be critical of things and it, when you love them. Like, um, so I think that's what those uh, books are kind of about. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, uh, can you pinpoint uh, the book or books that inspired you to be a reader? And then what book or books inspired you to be a writer? And is it the same books? they're different yeah that's a that's, that's a great question because i think like um the the publishing has changed so much and and public and the, and the like the accessibility of stuff like when i was a I feel like when i was a kid there was there was walden books in the mall um and there was a library and it was a little bit more of a limited um limited thing like a limited selection of things you can get um so i was kind of I, I started very broad, like with like the, you know, Stephen King short stories and like Edgar Allan Poe, those collections that are in every bookstore, like, uh, like, so it started like very like, okay, here are the foundational quote unquote foundational texts of, of horror. And those were the things I was interested in. Those were the things that my dad knew about so that he was able to kind of point me towards things and, and read with me, uh, when I was very young. And then as I got older with, um, with the proliferation of, of, of online shopping and the fact that you can like if you hear about something weird you could just go get it right now and, and just and amazon will have it to you in two days sometimes a day uh like so like that changed the game substantially so that when i was in later high school and early college and kind of being like oh i want to kind of do this with my life um i think it gave me access to these books that i'd heard about for a while or couldn't track down copies of and and those were i think the books that made me be like i can do this and i think the one I, the example I use a lot is um, Joe Lansdale's The Drive-In, um, the, 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 that first book, especially. Um, it's not like, it's not like I read it and was like, I can do this. It's more like I read it and was like, here's a book, like we were kind of just talking about, here's a book that's kind of about movies. Here's a book that's about so much more. And it's about what, it, you know, it's about like friendship and, and, and hatred and, and, and humanity and, and all these different, it's, it's all these different aspects to it, even though it's about like, an alien meteor that takes over a drive-in like it's it, it has it's this this such a literary bend you like you can't read that book and not be like oh this book has has deep themes and motifs and ideas even though it's about kind of b-horror movies in a way um so i kind of saw that book and it was it gave me kind of the permission or like the idea of like i know i can write what i love i can write what i love talking about i can write novels about it and that was so that was kind of the, the book in a way that set everything off my access to that book okay um so when did you just um so was it you that decided that clown in a cornfield would be a ya novel and where did that idea come from to kind of like go to that switch a number of different things kind of lined up for for that but it was it always it always was that title and it always was ya and i had to kind of just when I was in the early days of it, I was like, do I want to do this? Do I want to like, I don't, I'm not, a, I'm, I wasn't a huge YA reader at the time. And I was like, well, do I want to, I, do I feel comfortable in this space? Do I feel like I have something to say? Do I want to, I don't want to be like a carpetbagger who's coming into like a genre who like hasn't read it. And, and so I, so I, I got a lot of YA horror books and I got what was like popular right then. And I read a lot, a lot, a lot. And I was like, no, I can definitely do this. And then I talked to, um, uh, Emily Lacey, uh, who's uh, uh, my one of my best friends, uh, Pat Lacey, um, 
his his wife she is uh, she's an MFA in in young in young adult literature and I, I kind of picked her brain a little bit and I was like I was like what are the things that I can and can't do in YA and her her answer was 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 a, was a great answer um, it was the idea that like there's literally nothing you can't do as long as these books are attempting to speak to teenagers attempting to um, speak to a teen audience have teen protagonists are about teenagers and what it's like to be a teenager and I was like oh well like video nights like that already <laughs> like so I've kind of already written a YA book so um yeah it was it was not a it was not a difficult um switch it was not something that felt hard to me it was just it was more the mental barrier of like do I want to do this this is so different than the stuff I've done before but um yeah I I don't I don't think I'm gonna stop anytime soon because I, I I've, I've said this on other in other interviews and stuff like that but it's like you'll have parents reach out to you or or, or, or teens reach out to you and be like this is my favorite book. And when you're writing books for adults, you're not really anyone's, you're like, it's very, very, very rare, rare that you're someone's like favorite book. But when you're writing books for teens, and it could be the very first horror book they ever pick up. It could be the ever, the first novel they pick up that they weren't assigned to read at school. Like that's a huge responsibility and like a very cool thing. So like, I've really enjoyed that process. I'm actually pretty drawn to young adult fiction as an adult, as an old yeah. man. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just, it's just more fun, uh, more of what I want to see in a horror story, especially with the horror genre. Oh, yeah. It's like it drops a lot of pretension. There's a lot of like there's a, there's the idea of like you write a horror book now and they're like, well, how do we sell it? Do we sell it as upmarket fiction? Can we call can we call it a thriller? Can we call it, you know, can we call it literary horror? Like which everyone, all the adult horror writers who are writing in those quote unquote genres or subgenres. I love their work, um, but it's all, it becomes like a marketing thing. And like you said, like with YA Har, I don't have to justify, I don't have to worry about the idea of like, no, I'm going to write a teen slasher. Like it'd be a way harder sell if you're telling people, no, no, this is an adult book, which I think content wise, you probably could just change the black out the teen on the spine and try to sell it as a, um, and try to sell it as an adult horror book. And I think a lot of booksellers either, on purpose or mistakenly put it in adult horror, which is fine with me because uh, kids can find it there too. Um, but yeah, I think, like you said, it's more of what is we as horror fans, I think we have similar, especially following the TikTok and what you guys do. We have similar aesthetics and things we're interested in. You're wearing a Terrifier t-shirt, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a, a lot of people assume that, that young adult fiction is watered down. It, not necessarily, not, if you if you read Clown in a Cornfield, it's not watered down at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I think there's there's so many other horror writers that are doing the same thing. Madeline Rue and Danielle Vega and all these different uh, YA authors that just happen to be writing horror, just happen to be writing YA horror. Um, yeah, they're fantastic books. I mean, I don't really see that much of like a, a difference. I feel like this would appeal just as much to adult horror fans as um as a younger audience, because I think aside from the concerns, it's still R-rated material. It's still pretty graphic. It's gory. They use language. And of course, teens use language. Use yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just I'm just saying I was the teacher for a number of years. It's like everything they say in this book is stuff I've heard. So. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're an if you're an uptight adult who thinks that that stuff belongs in your youth, then these books aren't for you. But they're for us because we're we try to keep the youthfulness in our entertainment. Oh yeah, oh yeah, we gotta stay young. <laughs> yeah. So um, you got a blurb from Clive Barker, who does I I would I guess I would describe Clive Barker as a more like I don't know 
like super adult type of writer and his his quote was adam caesar is an author who knows how to make us afraid how did you feel when you got that blurb well barker barker wrote a number of uh young adult novels too and like oh, yeah, magic of that series cool. but uh, but i think i think when we think of clive barker we think of like clive barker writer and director uh you think of like hellraiser and nightbreed and, uh uh yeah i got that i got that email because I didn't get the, the blurb directly. My editor got on the phone with Barker and then he emailed me like a transcript of what they said on the phone. And uh, I was in a car uh, with my three best friends driving down to um, Scares That Care, Virginia. So we were going to a horror con and I got that email and I'm looking at the email. And like, I mean, it's not, it's not exaggeration to say, like you guys understand that like, that's like life changing. That's like one of oh, the most yeah. insane things that's ever happened to me. Um, like I, 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 I tell other people when they're like, "Oh, Clive Barker blurb." I'm like, "Well, getting married and then having and then just recently having a baby." I'm like, "Those two life events probably go above that." And then like, that's that's a firm number third, number three. Like like those, that's like the biggest life event and like craziest happiest thing that's ever happened so like it was pretty wild in that car because we went we all went ape shit like um uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah it was just it's just like he changed my life um and then because it happened like over the phone with my editor i was like how do i like get in touch with him how do i thank him how do i like um uh like chance would have it like two weeks later like maybe two or three weeks later um he was doing a, uh, an appearance and he doesn't do a ton of appearances these days, but he did an appearance at um, monster mania in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. So my buddy and I, Scott Cole, uh, who's a great writer as well. We were like, we got on the bus over into from Philly into Jersey and we're like, all right, well, we're going to go wait on like, we wait on like a two hour line uh, to meet him. And I was like, this is going to be, I mean, this is going to go from like the greatest moment of my life to like the worst moment of my life. If he doesn't <laughs> remember, or if he doesn't like know who I am, or if that was, or if like it was all like smoke and mirrors and like they talked to like his assistant or something, uh, I like I was gonna be like so upset. And uh, we so we waiting and like you go we were waiting outside in the parking lot and they brought us up like ten at a time in the elevator to like this private room where Barker was signing and we get in there and there's a huge I mean it took two hours there was a huge line and he stops the line and he's like oh you go like I was like hey Mr Barker I, you don't know me but. He blurred my book, Clown in the Cornfield, and he stopped everything once he like realized who I was. And he like he talked to us for, for for a long while about my book to the point where I was like getting embarrassed, where I was like, I could feel the people who were like, we just waited two hours to get out of this lie, like, like just staring daggers at us. And then like he turned to Scott and he's like, Are you Adam's friend? And it was, it was like, Yes. And he's like, I'm a writer too. And he's like, It's good to have a writer friend like him. And he just like he draws, <laughs> he drew Scott this like he Scott got a, a signature and he drew Scott this incredible sketch where he wasn't doing any art or anything, but he was like like he just the like it was just like an incredible experience. Like I said, it was just like um what a what a kind man. I've only met him. I met him once when I was in high school. I met him in a uh, Comic Con. He was he was cool then, but he just, you know, signed my autograph and moved on. We didn't have much of a conversation, but this, the second time I met him, like was, you know, one of the nicest interactions I've ever had with another writer. It was just wild. Yeah. So it was just, that's a, yeah. that's a, a dream come true for a fellow artist, you know, like that's, that's like John Carpenter telling me that I'm a great director. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's, 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 you really can't get, you, uh, yeah, it's, you just couldn't get much higher. It's just, it's, it's insane. Um, yeah. So it was, it was an amazing thing. And my, well, I'm a big Clyde Barker fan too that like I would 
feel like I could die now. If yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm glad I didn't, but because uh, all the, all the stuff <laughs> that came after has been pretty good. But like, yeah, no, I could have. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very emotional, so I would have just started crying like a baby and embarrassed myself. <laughs> I didn't I didn't cry in front of him, but with the with getting the blurb, I like I did cry. I like definitely teared up a little bit because I was like, this is gonna change things, you know? Uh, yeah. And it's funny because like I, I saw someone I so I shared the the um and I, I'm sure they weren't trying to be a dick, but like I, I shared uh the 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 cover of Clown 2 and like one of the first comments I got like was like, Oh, you use that you use the same blur, blurb twice. And I was like, <laughs> so? brother, that yeah. is going on my goddamn tombstone. Are you kidding me? Are you, exactly. like, you're upset <laughs> I used the same blurb from Clive Barker twice? <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, Clive Barker used the same blurb from Stephen King. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the face of the new face of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. Yeah, he's, there you go. Yeah, of course. Everyone does. It was just it was just a weird comment to get, like, where I was like, Are you kidding me? Like, of course I'm gonna use this again. <laughs> so um were you surprised about the success of Clown in a Cornfield? Uh, yes. Not to get not to get too far in the in the weeds with like, with like bad stuff, but like okay. that was that was that came out, um, that came out like twenty twenty, like beginning ish of COVID, like like the beginning of like COVID being a real problem, like the idea of like of like or at least a logistical problem. It was always it's always a terrible thing. It's a horrible problem but like the idea of like shutting down businesses and things like that was like the was like when that book came out and a lot of there were so many shipping delays and these books are like shipped or printed overseas and need to be shipped or something like that like there's all this stuff that like led to like me being like oh you know 10 or 10 or 12 years of of, of writing books and i finally get my big shot at like a, a book that's going to be in bookstores and it's gonna be everywhere and i couldn't believe it and then like just kind of slowly coming to grips with like, you know, there's a lot of other problems in the world at the same time, but the slowly coming to grips with the idea of like, Oh, like, I guess this book's not going to do well because like, um, and I think, I think everyone kind of thought that I don't think that was just my, my own uh, thing. Cause I think, I think Harper was like, this is, they were taking a chance anyway. They're like, we don't do a ton of horror. You don't do a like, ton of horror like this. I think they couldn't print a ton. So like every bookstore, if they got it, um they got like one copy a lot of bookstores were closed um i went to when i went to first get it like first go see my book in a bookstore it was like two days after release and the guy was like oh yeah i think we have that it's it's in the back so like he like wasn't even like shelves so it was just like i kind of was like all right check my watch like call it like this is this is not gonna happen but um I think the reviews really, really helped. Um, got starred reviews from like Booklist and other places that I can't remember right now. And I think word of mouth helped. Um, people who liked it talked about it. Uh, and people who liked it, like on Instagram, there's like a whole series of people who like took pictures out, out in cornfields or like dressed up like Frendo and did all this stuff. Like I think um, not nothing, nothing I did uh, comes close to what um like it for as far as promotion and stuff like that came comes close to like what people who liked the book did so it's what it's one of those things where like mike's saying he gets emotional but it's like it's one of those things where it's like it, you, you go from like being like this is this is this is it let's you know let's let's move on uh the drawing board next next thing and i never really thought there would be a sequel the first book ends in a way that like implies almost a sequel um but it was 
in my mind, that's just what you do in, in slashers. Of course, you have to have that little, like, right before the credit stinger. Like, you have to have that little, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the evil persists. Like, you have to have that, like, so, like, I was just writing that as, like, a goof. And a lot of people were like, oh, book doesn't even have a real ending. He's just setting it up for a blatant sequel. And I was like, I didn't. I was like, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I assumed this was the last, first and last book I'm ever going to get to write like this. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, it's it's been it's been an incredible uh, honor to be able to continue. Because um, I, I, I like the second book even better. Um, that's, just, that's not marketing hype. I think, like, I got to do weirder and wilder things in the second book um without spoiling what those are but um i was very surprised very happy that harper was encouraging of like you want to do what hey, go for it and then like i just yeah <laughs> so yeah well that, that brings me to my next question about the inspiration for clown in the cornfield and clown in the cornfield too where uh, while i was reading clown in the cornfield i was wondering what films and books inspired it because you feel like you're in a slasher movie until you until you're not like the the twist you throw in there toward the last few chapters just takes you on a whole different trip but then when i as i read clown in the cornfield 2 i didn't feel like that was inspired by anything except for the first book is that true um to an extent yeah i think i think well i love like you like you mentioned i love slasher movies and it's i tried to look at i tried to look at it um, cause I knew it was going to be a modern slasher. So I knew it was going to be like kids with cell phones, like very, very, very present day. Like, like couldn't separate it from present day at all. Um, but the idea of like going from like the sixties onward going from like, you know, proto slashers from like peeping Tom and psycho towards like the things that had come out, like the week, the book was due, like the, um, uh, uh like, like, so the idea of like slasher is a, is a, is a subgenre. It has many different flavors um, and, is, and it, it took a long time to become codified. Like when we think of like the scream rules, uh, like the Kevin Williamson, like scream rules, like so many slashers don't adhere to that at all. So many slashers break those that it's like, I feel like that's the thing that people have in their mind about like, it was like a movie, a, a meta movie, like, oh, these are the rules. So that's, I retroactively apply that to every movie. And I think there's, it's not exactly true. So I'd really try to look at like, the general slasher um, and what is its general structure um, and, and adhere to that very closely. And then, like you said, there's, there is a, there's an aspect of like now there's an aspect of like kind of the sad reality. Like we're talking about teens and teen concerns. And I'm remembering back to what Emily said about how to write a YA book. And it's like, well, what, what are teens scared of? Teens aren't scared of, being a babysitter, they're not the Laurie Strodes. They're not scared of like a, a lone uh, attacker with a knife coming after you and your friends. They're scared of like they're doing like shelter and place drills every other week at school. They're doing like you know like they're doing like things like that. So it's like what? How do you how do you change that? Deal with that in uh, a slasher format is kind of the key inspiration for that. Where that third act goes, and then and then the second one. Um, yeah, there's not as many direct. I I feel like there's not as many direct references because I because I think I was trying to be less structured. I wasn't looking at slasher movies and being like it has to be this. I was looking at the characters and situations in the first book and basically being like, what's interesting to spin out of all the implications of that. Like if you flash forwarded one year, and you took this somewhat seriously and somewhat realistically, uh, what would what would happen? Um, and I and that's. 
that's where two comes from. Um, and it's it, like, I think people, people are just starting to get, because Barn, as we're recording this, Barnes and Noble kind of put the book out early. So people are like, just now, like people who like, aren't like reviewers and stuff like that are getting the book. Um, and I, and I haven't seen so much of it, but I bet I'm going to see people being like, this is too different, or this is too, like, this isn't what like the first book is at all. Um, I haven't been, luckily I haven't been seeing a lot of that because I think people um, kind of connect with those characters enough to, to let the weirdness go. Uh, but I bet, I bet there's going to be some people who are not super happy that it's not the most traditional slasher. I mean, one of the things that I loved about Clown in a Cornfield too is kind of how it kind of like taps into now. It feels like very of the moment, um, especially with the references to conspiracy theories, the mentality that goes into some of the most far-fetched nonsense that you could imagine. And um, you do this without it ever feeling like preachy or condescending and you never like name drop anything. So, but I, things like, like spring to mind are like QAnon, Alex Jones and Reddit. So what was, and weird as it seems, I kind of feel like almost everything in here feels like if Clan in a Cornfield happened in the real world, this would most definitely be the fallout from, for it. This is what would happen, especially in like our like conspiracy fueled state that we live in. Um, so was, was this like really intentional? You trying to be reflective of the world that we're currently living in? Here's, here's, here's the absolute truth. Um, okay. And this is somewhat of a spoiler, uh, not really, but but going along with what you just said, but the idea of like, uh, of like, oh, wanting to be ripped from the headlines. Mm -hmm. um, I, <laughs> I pitched like I, I don't just have carte blanche. I can't just like write any book I want. Even though they did want a clown two, I had to like pitch what I thought clown two would be. So I had to get on a Zoom meeting, kind of just like this one, and be like, all right, guys, I'm gonna blow your blow your hair back. Get ready. Here's clown of the cornfield two, and I had to like pitch it. Um, so that, that was the day that a big national event happened that people are going to look at, people are going to look at clown two and be like, oh, well, he's just like, this is going to not age well because it's like, it seems like a rip from the headlines book, or it seems like it's like, so like, I'm just, I'm, I'm 100% being honest with you. I did not write towards, uh, like any specific, uh, national american event that was that happened i wasn't like looking back and being like oh i can make this like that this was going to be the plot of clown 2 before like things like that happened and i think part of it is just um i've i've been fascinated with conspiracy thought uh like for a long time i've even tried to write uh, i have two novels that never sold that are partial novels that are about um kind of about like the like online conspiracy theories and like one of them's kind of serious and one of them's kind of like more of a joke like because they're just fascinated with like yeah the way that like people get sorted into algorithms and start believing this stuff and it's like as like a if you if you consider yourself like a, a rational thinking person you can look at a lot of this stuff and be like oh how the hell could someone believe that and it's like i think it's i think it's it's this weird insidious nature of like the internet it's like no man you could believe it like <laughs> like you like it like that's I, I think that's maybe part of what you're talking about of like not talking down and not being preachy like i i truly believe like like anyone can believe anything if they get if they like click on like the wrong few youtube videos and like could lead them down these like paths like so i've i've been fascinated with that for like for years now i've been trying to write um like books that tap into that and it and it was like 
every publisher, every every agent, my agent was just like, ah, no one's gonna, this is too far fit. No one's gonna believe this. And then you have like all, like you said, the QAnon, Alex Jones stuff, which is like wild. Now, now we're just seeing like the all these different trials and all these different fallout from this stuff. And it's like, no, it's like this affected the real world in a very real way. Um, no matter no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, no matter what, like I think a lot of people, like a lot of rational people could agree this is like this is some crazy pants stuff um so i think that was it's always been an interest of mine and i wanted to write like a conspiracy thriller uh kind of thing and i i thought oh well what's it what's a better way to do it than like clown of cornfield has a has an air of like campfire tales and like in like different like there's all the different like legends of like friendo and how he like came to be the the spokesman of uh of 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 bay pen which is the corn syrup factory in the town and then you learn in the book that like us oh, it's all marketing hokum like someone like made it up like someone's granddad like made it up and they like put him on the bottom like so like there was already that idea in the first clown of the cornfield so to extend it to like this idea of like invented history and like things didn't happen the way that you're saying it like people arguing over like very objective facts um just felt like it it made a lot of sense to continue with um, so that's not to like, that's not to make anyone think that they're going to read clown two and they're going to be like bummed out or that as well, this is like, you know, oh, this is like a, you know, a current events thing. It's not like it's, I hope people can read it and just enjoy it as the slasher story. It is, but it's just unavoidable. Some of that stuff, like, you could, like once I started writing that story is like, you're going to have to allude to some of this real world stuff. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just all kind of how you approach it because I kind of feel like art, music, film books are always going to be like reflective of the current time in the moment and sometimes stuff is un unintentional and like I feel like kind of like the last Batman movie was like that kind of taps into some of like the same type of yeah online, yeah. online stuff that, that that you're talking about in here but I I think it really works I don't feel like and it, it starts in the first one it kind of addresses kind of ideas of like Trump's America in a way that's subtle and I never get the feeling that you're talking down to that, like that side, not because me and Mike have never shied away from like tackling a little bit more of like the thornier aspects of some of the, the politics of horror. But I, I found I found it very interesting. It seems to come from a progressive viewpoint, but never condescending to the other side, or you at least try to approach it with a sense of like empathy and understanding. Yeah, because I have family that's like, you know, I have family that's it's it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you don't like you said empathy and understanding like I, like we're all people and i think this is like i don't ever i don't ever want fiction because i think it's like the biggest bummer in the world to like open a open a piece open a book or watch a movie and be like oh this filmmaker thinks they're gonna teach me something or oh this this author thinks you're gonna teach me something and that's the, that's like the most i i don't think i don't think books should be instructive i don't think films should be didactic i think they should be of course, they should have ideas in them and they should have points of view, but they like if it's if it becomes oppressive or if it becomes annoying or if it becomes preachy, like you said, like I tune out like immediately. Like those are like some of my elite. I'm, I'm a very if you watch me online or if you like see my like me talk about films online, like I, I get I get uh, a lot of sh shit from my friends being like he likes everything like. But but the, that's the thing. Those are the things I don't like anything that's like I, I when I get a whiff of like this person thinks they're going to teach me something like I, I hate that. And I just check out. Cause like, I don't, I don't like like moralistic stuff or, and I don't like, like, so like, I, I appreciate you saying that about the clown books because I don't like, that's the word. That's the last thing from my mind. And I think some people, some people 
even like when you start dealing with that stuff at all, some people shut down and they're like, oh, this is, you know, woke trash and like, you know, get up, get upset. And I'm like, no, man, like, I don't like I don't want to do that at all. Like, I, I that's not that's not what interests me. And it's not why I like mm-hmm. horror. And it's not like why I like books. So why would I try to do that to you kind of thing? You know, um, I think the character of Rust kind of keeps that part of the story grounded because he is kind of that small town mentality, redneck mentality guy. And that's why him and Cole kind of drifted apart. So I, th- yeah. I think he he kind of keeps it from being being preachy and keeps it from from looking like you're looking down on those people because he's kind of one of them. Yeah. And Rust is like my like, I, I don't know, I, like you're not supposed to like, I guess, have favorites. But I think like Rust is kind of my favorite character. And it's, it's he's like a stealth protagonist in book two in a way. Um, well, spoiler. So Rust survives the first book <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this. But I think they're like um, he's super interesting. And I introduce aspects of Rust's character in book two that um, fingers crossed. I don't know. Like I don't the first book I wrote, not like not thinking I was going to ever do a sequel or anything. But the second book, I was like, well, what if what if this does become a series? So I put a couple of things in the second book where I'm like, I, this would be an interesting thing to follow up on. Uh, just like not not stuff that like makes it feel like a, a serial or whatever, but just stuff that like aspects of his character and his life and his family particularly. And I'm like, it'd be really interesting to see X. And then um, so I put them in there. And I'm glad you I'm glad you like Rust. Yeah, like I said, yeah, you, you, you really you really open him up in part two. Yeah. And. And gave gave him more depth. Yeah, I felt like I felt like I knew him a little more. He gets a lot of perspective chaps. I don't even know he. I don't even know if he gets one in in the first one because I was trying to hide the ball. Of like, first of all, spoil, we're spoiling the hell out of part one because <laughs> you you kind of are supposed to think that Rust is maybe <clears throat> uh, part of the pro. Like he might even be friendo. So like there's this there's a lot of red herrings with Rust. Um, so now that you know that Rust is a good guy, you can read the first book with. Uh, <laughs> with that lack of suspense uh gone um but uh yeah i think i think i i was kind of careful not to get in his head like book one is so it's a lot closer to quinn's perspective so you're getting her own biases like she's from philadelphia she's this east coast kid who comes into this town and has all these judgments about the people in the town and uh a lot of them end up being completely unfounded and she's almost like that idea of like not to make it not to like label it liberal conservative but there's this idea of like this 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 progressive quote unquote thinker that thinks they're like the most progressive thinker, but then would go to uh, the, the Midwest and then have all these uh, completely uh, biased and bigoted, bigoted thoughts about the people there. Um, and I think it doesn't make them a bad person because I don't think Quinn's a bad person. She's just young and she just has limited experience. So I think that's one of the things that appeals to me about that book is you know, showing how even the best of us can be biased. I mean, the the characters of Quinn, Rust, and Cole are very likable, and what I really like is kind of the, how you endear uh, over the course of the both of these books to like. Um, obviously, the first one is a little bit more concentrated on Quinn, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Stephen King, where you get to know the characters on a personal level before injecting the horror, and that's kind of what makes you care so much about them. Did you did you start off with the characters of Clan in a Cornfield, or did you start off with the plot? I mean, what idea came first? Hmm. That's interesting. I never really think about it that way. I think it just, I think it's like a trick, quote unquote, that I do in a lot of my books. This idea of like, if you give breakaway characters, like, like I do it in Video Night a lot, where it's like, you're, you're not even sure who's going to end up being like surviving to the end in Video Night, because you have these kind of 
tertiary characters like Todd Darrell, who's the the cop in Video Night, where you get a lot of like his backstory and you get a lot of like what makes him an interesting guy. So I, I kind of just like doing those little those little like sketch chapters, even if sometimes they don't make it into the book. There was a whole in the first in the first book, um, uh, Ginger, who is uh, one of the one of the kids who's kind of one of the side characters. She gets a whole perspective chapter in uh, in an earlier draft in the in the second to last draft of of the first clown of the cornfield and i almost like always wanted to work with my editor to put that back in in like a future like extended edition because i i i like i like getting to know characters even if they're not even if they're like quote-unquote cannon fodder characters that are going to die i think it's uh i think it's kind of important to like that you care why you know like it's otherwise it just becomes like a cool kill set piece um but i think it's a little bit of both i think it's like plot informs character and character informs plot i'm a very like very practical writer in that way where I know a lot of a lot of writers like follow their muse and they're like, oh, like my story went in a completely different direction because my characters decided to do something today. And I I always read stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, they're not real. Right. You know, it's all you like you can <laughs> <laughs> you can you have some control over over what they do. So, like, I think it's a little of column A, a little of column B, like what's the story and, and who are the best characters to populate that story and the most interesting way to tell that story. And then they like get fleshed out and shaded in. Um, as you go and and I've never written a sequel before so that was like kind of the most fun about okay about coming back to these characters too and being like okay I have a much firmer idea who they are so it's actually way easier to write them because I know what Cole would do and I know what Russ would do and I know what Quinn would do in given any situation and they the they're three they're almost like a split psyche like they're three almost like on like the Myers-Briggs test I bet they would score completely differently because I think they would all do different things um and that's to me that's interesting you don't want characters that are the same and you want the reader to kind of be able to guess like well Cole's going to react to this in this way because he's this way um so yeah it's it's just been fun doing sequel which I never I never gave much thought to the idea of doing a sequel I never really thought and then I found myself enjoying it so much so uh, you're a new a New Yorker living in Philadelphia now. So how did you tap into the small town mentality so well in these books? Uh, where are you guys located? We're located in Southern California, <laughs> but Michael is actually uh, originally from Chicago, but uh, grew up in Mississippi. So he has a lot of yeah. experience. With okay. Him. Okay. And a lot of this, a lot of this rang true for me. <laughs> yeah. I I've think it's lived just... in California my whole life. So I have very limited experience like Quinn. I think it's um, it's a little bit of like guesswork and it's a little bit of just like knowing people. Like I, I have a lot of friends who are not from my area and I have a lot of family. I have a lot of family that lives all around the country. So I think that kind of helps. Um, I, I have um, the horror hounds in Indianapolis and Ohio. Like I've stayed with family when I've done those. So it's like, it, I think it's, it's, not, it's the idea of like getting out there and talking to people is, is, is part of hopefully what I tap into. Um, not that I think that like the the books any great treaties on like middle American life because I wouldn't want to I would want to say that because I am like the complete uh, you know uh, East Coast city slicker like um, but I think there's trying to approach it and trying to do my due diligence and being like well what are these places really like because I think that's it's interesting because we've been talking about all this like cultural stuff but that's a big aspect of horror movies that's a big aspect especially of slasher movies slasher movies are incredibly regional productions usually and that's part of why i think i like the genre because i love i like watching 70s and 80s things from the 70s and 80s that show how different america used to be like it used to be not 
now you go to now you go to uh, outside Cincinnati and all and like all the strip malls look the same as they look here because everything's the same kind of um, uh, chains. Um, but used to be such regionality to the country, and you get a little glimpse of that, especially when you're watching movies that were made independently and made for little money that that had to use real locations. Um, so that's that's a big part of why I like uh, '70s and '80s slashers and '90s slashers to a small extent is to be able to see these kind of like time capsule movies uh, mm. that are like, okay, we're traveling, you know, you have in the first Friday the 13th, you have like parts of Jersey you don't typically see on screen because now everything's shot in California or it's shot in, uh, or it's shot in Canada made to look like other parts of America. And it all kind of looks the same, uh, which is one of my biggest pet peeves with modern movies is, oh, like, okay, we're in Toronto again. Like, I, I love Toronto. <laughs> and then the weird thing is I love movies that are actually set in Toronto. But it's if it's Toronto doubling for New York, I completely check out. But if you watch something like The Silent Partner, which is like a Canadian movie set in Canada, that's supposed to be like about Toronto. That's great, because that's like a regional movie and has regional flavor to it. I hate these like these movies that feel like so homogenous in how they're presented and look. Um, so I think that's a, a little side thing about what I like about slashers is seeing different parts of the country so I wanted to do that in book form I wanted to do that like with Kettle Springs it's like well let's pretend Kettle Springs is a real place and try to build it kind of from the ground up yeah and when you're when your characters clash you're not telling us one is right and one is wrong you know there's a lot of times where both characters have a point yeah 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 I think and I think Russ brings up some great points I think Russ is kind of the most eloquent yeah. arguer in the in the group um and, and the kind of the most thoughtful uh arguer in the group so it's like i find myself agreeing even though i don't like i don't think i'd agree with him on everything it's like i think half of what russ says i'm like yeah no i see I, that makes sense <laughs> he seems to be not as ruled by his emotions as the other characters yeah russ. i think that's I, I i think he's just good he's a guarded person you know what i mean he's a, and he's also a little slower like cole is fast 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 now 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 he's like impetuous um, and it comes from that privilege of like, he's a literal rich kid. He grew up, he can have anything he wants. Um, Quinn is, 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 has had bad things happen in her life. She's completely thrown into a complete instability. She's like the, her one constant through these two books is that like nothing is stable. Um, so she's uh, on uneven ground. And Russ is just like, he's just going about doing what he's done forever and and that's uh, that's his ability to like step back and be like more metered about things and, and more reasonable about things i know we we're talking about cultural stuff and sometimes I, i've noticed that there's some horror fans that that turns that, that that turns off we try to like use the podcast to expand on those ideas because i think one of the things that i love about horror genre especially the more independent it is like you said it ends up being kind of reflective or a document of the era it came out of a movie like night of the living dead, like George Romero, I feel like was always tapping into something. And what I love about horror is it allows us to confront like these fears that we have in society and whatever turmoil we're going through and reconfigure it in a more imaginative way, in a more fun way, um, incorporating fantasy. And it allows us to deal with some of these things in a more, indirect manner but still confronting our fears and giving the audience a good time and a sense of uh, fun and I, I think that's one of the things I really appreciate about a lot of your work it feels very now it feels very tapped into the tapped into the moment and 
I think that's something that horror does better than any other genre. Like, I feel like most like genres that try harder to like be a little bit more blunt about their message or to be more directly about some of the ideas kind of fail to engage me in the way that horror does because it does it in such a fun and such a fun way and taps yeah. into different things like that. And th that's what I, I kind of really like about your work. Thank you. Yeah. I think there's, it's so funny how I just think there's a, there's a, there's a vocal person for any viewpoint on the internet and they're going to argue about it like things, but it's just, it's when you see that kind of stuff and when you see like, I don't know. I feel like the people that run Fangoria now get a lot of that and get a lot of like that hate kind of thrown their way about like, Oh, get this, like, you know, get this X, get X out of whatever, whatever X is, whatever it's, you know, the, any kind of, any kind of issue, get it out of horror. Like, well, we don't, I don't want horror that talks about this stuff. And it's like, you look down and they're all, and they're always wearing a Dawn of the Dead t-shirt and you're like, are you sure? Are you sure you want that? Out of your heart? Cause I like, I don't, I don't a hundred percent. It's, I love, I love the trashiest, mm -hmm. most puerile stuff. Like I really, really do. And I, and I do think there is a way to, to enjoy anything. I think there's a way to enjoy anything, even if it's like morally repugnant. I mean, like, look, I, not that it's the worst movie in the world, but I've got a blood harvest poster behind me on the, on the wall, right next to a, right next to a, a class of Newcomb high. These are not, uh, these are not moralistic treaties on, uh, <laughs> uh, on like the state of America in, in any way, shape or form. But I also think you can be a, a, a conscious consumer of the things that you watch and the things that you like. I, I think you can, uh, to me, that's the, that's part of the fun of, of movies and part of the fun of books. Like, why would I, the idea of like, turn off your brain entertainment is such a weird argument to me. It's like, no, I, I, I could sit and enjoy whatever I want with my brain on. I'm cool. Like, I think that's like, to like, that's so antithetical. And I think very few movies actually get made that way. And I think very few books actually get written that way. I think it's just a weird sub subsection of the fandom that wants to yell about this stuff that I'll never be happy no matter what. Anyway, because if you gave them, if you gave them actually what they wanted, they wouldn't like it either. So like, I think, I, I think, I think the idea of like, keep X, whatever X ends up, solve for X uh, out of horror is such a, such a stupid argument. And I, and it's, I think it's, we amplify it. We, we tend to like, we tend to like quote tweet these people and like give them an audience when they wouldn't normally have an audience. So I think this is like actually a tiny, I think it's a, a tiny, tiny, tiny subsection of the people that actually watch movies and read books and are actually uh, consumers of this stuff. Um, I, I, I think we're just getting a disproportionate read on it because it, on the flip side of things, on the, on the like, not on the, to chastise the other side now, we get so hung up on this idea of like, is there a purity test? Is what I'm watching okay to be watching? Is that it? Like, which I, as someone who just pointed to my blood harvest poster, I don't, I don't believe in that either. And and not, not to say I'm any kind of like moderate or like to play both sides. I think the idea that, I think the idea that you're going to be like a school marm about some of this stuff and, and tell people what they can and can't enjoy and tell people what they, and tell filmmakers and tell uh, writers what they can and can't write about you t if you would tell these people they sound like nancy reagan they'd be they'd fall over dead in their chair but they do it's so funny that you can go so hard to the other side of things that th this is a taboo or this is not okay um and you end up sounding like the people that you're that are like your mortal enemies online so i think everyone just needs to chill out take a deep breath um and enjoy uh <laughs> har cinnamon har literature with their thinking caps on i think is the main thing uh, i mean yeah. 
like like what's cool about that is like you you mentioned like movies like blood harvest and like i feel like a lot of like trash cinema and exploitation cinema even if it doesn't have loftier goals kind of ends up reflecting culture anyway i feel like a oh lot yeah of the exploitation movies of the 70s are a result of a couple things i mean one's like the haze code being lifted so you're able to exploit more but i also think it's because of like vietnam and the more cynical the country was becoming it yeah. produced art that was more cynical like movies like jack hill films, which i know you're familiar with because oh, i love jack hill yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. i feel like his stuff is never preachy but i feel like a, a movie like coffee like kind of like really taps into something that yeah. a certain type of feeling that that's going on at the moment as a real point of view too like something like switchblade sisters you're like and it's like not even like i, I i'm sure i wouldn't agree with jack hill on a lot of this stuff uh but it's it's i i love that he's saying it or presenting it in his in his you know quote-unquote genre of films like his quote-unquote like um turn off your brain movies um and then i think there's stuff like where it's all incidental there's stuff like blood harvest where i don't think bill rebane had any kind of thematic mm -hmm. goals or motifs beyond like wanting to make a movie but like you said you can unpack you look at it and it's like a time capsule it's this regional uh made in a place where not a lot of movies are made and you can kind of like approach it in that way and look at how fascinating it is I, I i don't think you have to watch every movie thinking you're going to write a college term paper on it but i do think you can watch movies and take more away from them than what is directly literally on screen i think in, in almost every case even like the the lowest of brow stuff um you can do that like yeah and it's not you, wrong it's not wrong to do you're not like you're not reaching for a you know for a point or or something that isn't there do, do you feel that some films go too far and and how do you feel about uh, some fans like demonizing other horror fans for liking films like a Serbian film. Uh, here's the thing. I, I don't think movies go to, I don't think like I'd ever come out and be like, Oh, this should have never been made. Like I, I definitely don't see myself ever being that kind of person unless like, unless actual people were hurt in the process. Like I, I can't ever see myself saying that, but it's also like, there also is the level of the question of taste and whether or not I want to, have that on my shelf or i want to you know to, to 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 support it or you know i think i think i'm very much in the mindset of like go with god like i know a lot of friends that that love very very extreme stuff especially when it comes to um literature like and i have friends that write it that are that are like the most extreme people you've ever met and they're just sweet teddy bear people like when you meet them um doesn't mean that that's my cup of tea taste wise um, and, it, and, and it's, I'm also a little bit of a, of a hypocrite because I like, I absolutely love Jack Ketchum. I've read everything Jack Ketchum's ever written. Um, and some of it is, is stomach churningly upsetting. Um, but I kind of pick and choose, you know what I mean? Like when it comes to the rest of extreme or hardcore horror, I kind of pick and choose and I don't, you know, I haven't seen a lot of the, a lot of the movies that make those, those like, you, this is the most depraved thing you've ever seen. Like, I haven't seen a lot of them because I'm just like, I know that's not for me. Um, but uh that's fine make them go for it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean i kind of feel like with with books it goes it, it's a little easier to get away with something like, example like cannibal holocaust as yeah. a, your book like tribesmen cannibal yeah. holocaust I, I mean i understand and I, I respect it and i know you're a fan and michael likes it too i don't care for that movie and it's more because of some of the circumstances surrounding it oh yeah but i i think it is with a book like tribesmen 
I think it's easier to swallow these ideas, some some of them, because you don't involve other people in it. This is all purely out of your imagination. Yeah, or animals, yeah. Or animals, yeah. Yeah, I... I... I wouldn't so I wouldn't so much say I'm a fan of Cannibal Holocaust because I'll give I'll give you an example. Um, okay. My buddy and I, Scott Cole, we're here in Philly, where there's the Exhumed Films crew. If you guys have heard of them, they they do um, all these incredible uh, 35 millimeter screenings, 35 millimeter and 16 millimeter screenings, um, and they did a um, they did a double feature of uh, the Man from Deep River and uh, and Cannibal Holocaust, and we went and we saw it. And I, I turned to Scott, right, like right when it was over. And I was like, you know what? I still appreciate Cannibal Holocaust. I still, um, you know, I, I'm glad we went to this show and I'm glad I saw it. But I'm pretty sure this is the last time I'm ever going to watch it. Because I saw it, you know, I saw it in 35 millimeter. I was like, that can't really be kind of topped. And it's just like, it's so unpleasant. And all that stuff, like the muskrat and stuff like that and the turtle, it's just so, it's so hard to like get those images out of your head that I think like, I'm like, I'm good. Like I wrote a book about Italian cannibal movies, like, like, I, but I'm also kind of good, you know, it, it like, so it's, it's a weird thing where, and I think in some ways, Trisman's kind of about that. Trisman's is about like that. When you make an exploitation movie and you're not just exploiting the audience, like it's when you're not just exploiting the audience exploitation, there's a lot of exploitation movies that were made in exploitive circumstances. And it's kind of what the book's fun. The book's like a, a kind of a haunted house on an Island thing. Like, um, but it's, it's not too subtly about that idea of like, I'm going to go make a movie and I'm going to uh, exploit a bunch of natives in order to do it. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's where I kind of fall on it. Not that my books are any kind of like mission statement, not that my books are like my final word on anything, but that's part of why I wrote the book. Is... Okay. I wanted to ask you, uh, can we hope to see a clown in the cornfield in movie form sometime soon? And would you ever adapt one of your own books into a film? Um, oh, those are those are good questions. Um, the 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 movie's getting worked on right now. It's Temple Hill Productions. They did they've they have an incredible track record with YA adaptations, uh, the Maze Runner movies, the uh, Twilight movies. Like so, like they like they've done the YA book to movie kind of pipeline before. Um, I'm not super um, involved, other than the fact that I've read the script and I know kind of little like bits of like who we've got attached as director and stuff like that um but as far as that like i'm good like i'm good not kind of adapting my own work i'm good not um i'll, I'll offer opinions when they ask them of course but like kind of the writers always kind of when movies are concerned the writers kind of always like the last person they talk to um even the screenwriter half the time um but i love movies and i love um i love writing screenplays um so i've had just this last year i've had two screenplays produced which is incredible because i would never had anything um anything made um and the, the movies look good from what i've seen uh i even got to visit the set of one they haven't been announced yet but those are originals like i like i like writing stuff that's not my books because I, I think in in a way i think hey i will be first in line to see cloud of the cornfield and i'm sure i will reap the benefit of like a media tie-in edition of a paperback um and i would love to sell more books and reach a wider audience but as far as i'm concerned the books are my final cut in a way you know what i mean like uh, i i like i've i've told that story to the to the degree that i exactly want to tell it and then i'm, I'm cool moving on um, so do you feel that the script captured your story when you read it yeah, it's different. It's 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 different, and I'm sure it's going to change because the way these things work, I'm sure it'll change again. Um, I think the 
I think the 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 script is like gets the soul of it exactly correct, and then like the circumstances. Like there's a whole there's whole sequences, and there's a lot of stuff in the in the uh, the screenplay version, which is which is very good. Um, the writer's very good. They wrote it. Um, that's very different. Um, and who knows how much of that if it if it ever gets made because it's you have to talk about all this stuff with the biggest of asterisks next to them because like i don't believe look at look at batwoman uh look at Batman. Oh, yeah. like i don't i don't believe in i don't believe a movie exists until i'm literally walking out of the theater having just seen it <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like uh so much can happen with this stuff and i've 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 had that happen before like even before clan i've had i've had options and things and 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 phone calls and meetings with people that like things have completely dissolved. So I never talk about that stuff even before, like I never talk about this stuff before I get paid. And then, and then, uh. even then sometimes not um, just because it's like, you don't want to get people's hopes up. People are like, Oh, I can't wait to see the movie. And I'm like, I think they have, you know, it's a great, it's clearly a, you know, big budget, like great production company and, and, and people involved in it. And I, I, I have every confidence in the world they're going to get it made, but I don't like, I don't look a gift horse in the mouth and I don't like, it's not it, to me. It's not real until, like I said, until the credits are rolling and I'm walking out and dump my popcorn in the. Uh, yeah. Bin. So, yeah. I'm really looking forward to seeing. Uh, you said original films you've you're working on. You've yes, on. Uh, they're both co-written or co-written. Okay. Yeah, both co-written. Um, ones with, they're both with collaborators I've worked with before that you'd almost be able to guess. But I don't even want to talk about that much because I don't know. Okay. how pissy um producers are going to be if i start talking about them, so, <laughs> so <laughs> i got a, I got a, like a, i got an interesting uh, i got an interesting email the other day it was like a group email it wasn't because i said something but it was like remember keep x off social media like don't okay. share pictures of what you saw in like this because we're trying to like so like i it wasn't me but i know that someone like either an actor or someone someone must have posted something that pissed them off enough that they would send an email to the whole production to be like don't post pictures of it. <laughs> <laughs> so. so um what's in the future for adam caesar as an artist i mean one of the things i know is you recently had your first child so do you see this changing or influencing you as you evolve as an artist i think it's just it's just a different kind of life i mean it's just a different way to to live i i'd be I'd, I'd be crazy to think it's not going to impact me i don't really know how it's going to impact me i don't think it's i don't think i'm all of a sudden going to be writing like little golden books um but I, but i don't you know i don't know um yeah i've just got a lot of irons in the fire and i'm kind of always trying to do something different um i love comics like i said and i've, I've got a um uh recently announced a dark horse uh dark horse is publishing uh, dead mall which is a four issue miniseries uh illustrated by dave stahl um it's, it's it's cool i've written tie-in comics before but i've never written something that was like that i wrote kind of from the ground up um it's it's i'm talking to the right guys it's it's chopping mall meets nightbreed meets the ruins like it's nice it's you know it's it's kids in a in an abandoned shopping mall that's not so abandoned uh, it's it's the and it's very comic booky in that way because the mall is the main character the mall is the main antagonist so the mall is like the narrator of the book <laughs> um, and I don't mean that in like a Scorsese way of like New York's really a character in Scorsese films. I mean, like, uh. the mall is actually the bad guy. <laughs> um, okay. So like this kind of stuff you couldn't really get away with in movies and kind of couldn't get away with in, in books. I feel like you can do in a different way in comics. So it's fun. I, so I'm just looking to do, I'll take everything as it comes. My next book has been handed in, hasn't been announced yet. Um, I'm really, really happy with it. It's another YA book, um, but it's about as different as you can get from Clown of the Cornfield. It's, yeah, it's very different. And it's kind of the cornfields like fun, fun horror. Uh, mm -hmm. This is like 
serious horror. <laughs> this is like upsetting wow. horror, uh, which is I'm very amazed I was able to do it for a YA audience. But the talks to that talks about the idea that you get to you can do anything in YA as long as it's about teens. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you about my one of my favorite horror authors, just because I never get to talk to anybody that that reads them. Poppy Z. Bright. Have you read Poppy Z. Bright? I've read Drawing Blood. Is the I I I've, yeah. uh, I've I I feel um I feel bad. That's the only point of reference I have. I, I have their books. Like I have a I have a a a large um vintage paperback collection. So I have them all. I just I okay. I, I know it's one of those things I got to go back to. What which is which is your favorite? What should I read next? Uh, probably Exquisite Corpse is probably my favorite. That's the big one. I I, I think I was drawn to Drawing Blood because it's about a comic artist uh, so it's kind of like let me uh let me read that one and i really liked it um but exquisite corpse yeah i'll i'll get to it <laughs> i like it because i see shades of clive barker in there but it's something completely different i was i was really devastated when they stopped writing horror fiction yeah yeah it's, it's one of those things where it's like you can't blame an, uh, a writer for like their decisions but you know that like there's such a fan base and a lot of those books are either in out of print or on, like only print on demand like I'm I'm a, I I'm sure there's going to be a Poppy Z Bright kind of renaissance once like TikTok kind of finds them and and and, and uh, yeah. the, you know like like it, all it takes is one like it takes just like one of those books going viral and then it's like and then every publisher and and every bookstore in America is going to be like I got to get copies of uh, Exquisite Corpse in I got to get copies of Drawing Blood in um, yeah I think I think a lot of a lot of backlist authors who either or either have moved on from writing. Uh, are or have moved on from earth uh, i think there's like a lot of uh, i think there's a lot of them that like i kind of bet that's going to eventually happen with uh because it's such a weird format of like tiktok doesn't care if the book's out of print tiktok doesn't care yeah. if the book's small press which is amazing it's this great equalizer but it's in yeah. a way it's like the great equalizer but it's also like a lottery ticket too because if you're like a writer and you're like man i hope i hope someone i hope the algorithm like someone holding up my book cover goes viral and then you know, you sell out a whole print run of it. So like, it's, it's wild how that can happen with, uh, with social media these days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, book talk is, is pretty influential. I mean, the, the, the way that people talk about stuff on there. And I remember when I came across you on my, for you page, I got so excited. I was like, Holy crap. That's Adam, C Adam Caesar. <laughs> so, um, uh, we're getting down to the end is I don't want to keep you too much longer. I, I would a couple more questions. Um, so you have a YouTube channel, project black t-shirt, and Which I haven't updated in a little while because I've been okay. so busy trying to launch Clown Two. But I've 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 got uh I've got stuff lined up for Halloween. Around Halloween season, I usually come back and actually do it weekly. So I I'm going to believe me, I'll come back. It's not a it's not a dead channel if you go there right now and you're like this guy hasn't uploaded in three months. Uh, no, it's not. I'll come back. Believe me. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that separates you from like other horror channels or is the way that you incorporate books into the film discussion. So you like to like, you know, discuss maybe an interesting exploitation movie or a vinegar syndrome syndrome release and then pair it with a book that somebody might enjoy um, if they enjoyed that movie. So I'll just pretend this is your channel. What would books would you recommend to people who, I mean, what movies would you recommend to people? We'll do it inverse who enjoy Clown in a Cornfield and Clown in a Cornfield too. Um, I don't know. I would go deep into the, I would like, I would try to like go to the slashers that not everyone's seen. 
Um, and I bring them up all the time just because they're like easy shorthand things. I could probably go stare at my uh, <laughs> go stare at my shelves for a little while to think of better answers. But stuff like stuff like Bloodhook, which I think is a great regional slasher, um, has such a I mean, it's not like it's like Planet of the Cornfield, but it it's in that same genre. Um, uh, Just Before Dawn, um, uh, Graduation Day. I love Graduation Day. It's one of my favorite high school slashers. Um, uh, night School. Uh, speaking oh. of regions, I, I went to school up in Boston and I love Night School's like one of the better Boston movies. There's like, it's like a better Boston movie than Departed. There's like more of Boston in it. Um, I, yeah, so I love Night School uh yeah like those like i would say go a little deeper in the in the slasher pool um if you like more modern stuff or you want like cherry falls for 90s slashers uh, i love cherry falls um yeah so has, those, those kinds of things yep i think it has folk horror vibes vibes too as well as slasher oh yeah there's definitely that, that like idea of like the rural rural versus city and then like Quinn yeah. kind of as the as the, almost the main character in wicker man and in, in, in some sense and that she's walking into this thing that she doesn't know is like kind of set in motion all around her so there there are there's definite folk car um vibes it's funny because it's just as a, from a marketing perspective i think james is almost going to hold it up he's going to hold up a summer job yeah so i like <laughs> i wrote a I wrote like a, a de, like a deliberate folk car um movie uh, or a book God, it's too long. It's too day. It's long day. Uh, but uh, I, I wrote a yeah. So I I, I kind of just like when people want folk car and I'm selling at a table and a, selling at a convention table, I always like point them to that. But I think you're right. I think there are aspects of folk car. I never really thought about it like that. That's great, Mike. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Anybody out there who's interested in uh, independent work, summer job is the one that probably creeped me out the most especially the introduction the way that you like really sucks you in like i I love folk horror so yeah this book this one's highly recommended to the audience thank you thank you all right i'm I'm gonna be reading all your books now because i I read clown in a cornfield and clown in a cornfield too and now i'm hooked i want to read everything you i appreciate it i'm gonna read i'm gonna read more poppy z bright this this conversation uh made me feel like i really need to um yeah so What's the best way to support your work and the best places to purchase your novels and novellas? Or what do you what do you prefer? Is you prefer them people going to bookstores or Amazon or anything? Anything helps me. I really like what I tell people is the easiest way. Like the way you buy books normally. Um, uh, I'm not. Uh, I understand that Amazon is this big like corporation, and I understand that like the 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 brick and mortar the you know the the chain bookstores are are big corporations. But I also like they're they're also the place that people buy the most books. You know what I mean? Like they're also the place that in a, in a weird way I'm dependent on them because I'm a dependent on like the analytics of like people also bought. And like, so like, I, I, I completely understand when people want to shop local, you could, you could, you could go to your local bookstore and have them. If they don't have Clown of the Cornfield and Clown of the Cornfield too, they will be more than happy to order it for you. They can, um, the way that um, Amazon set up and stuff like that and self-publishing set up, they can also order in my small press books if you want to support your local indies. Um, but it don't. I don't think people should feel "quote unquote" bad that they shopped at a at a at a at a big store at like a, at a at a Target or at a uh, Amazon or at Barnes and Noble. It all helps me. Um, so really, just whatever you're comfortable with, um, I get the same money and I get the same uh, support that way. So really, however you most like reading books. Um, a lot of people like audiobooks. However you listen to audiobooks, iTunes, um, Audible. 
and and also there's also like the idea that you don't have to buy any of this stuff. You can go to your local library. Um, I really I a big supporter of libraries and the library system and librarians have been very good to me because they always recommend my books around Halloween and stuff like that. So um, go to your local library. If they don't have it, just ask nicely, talk to a librarian, start, start a conversation. And they'll, they'll be more than happy to order them in for you. I get paid for those too. So like that all helps me. Um, so really, however you get your books is um, completely fine by me and all helps me. So I appreciate it. So your independent horror books, um, they're a little bit harder to find. You have to mostly go to Amazon for, for these. Yeah. Books. That's how. Yeah. I, I kind of yeah. They, um, I think they're in Barnes and Noble too. And I think you, you really could, you could do a special order for them at, at most indie bookstores. Um, and, and there's bookshop.org now uh, we'll sell them to you as well, which is Ingram's imprint that supports indies. Um, but yeah, like you said, they're, they're not on store shelves. So a lot of people, uh, especially if they're young people who've just read Clown in the Cornfield, they don't know they exist. Um, but I think they would like them. I think they'd enjoy if they, if they checked them out. So, Would you have any advice for up-and-coming writers? Um, finish what you start, I think, is a huge one. I think the, the, it's so easy to write the first third of a story. Um, <laughs> it's like that's when you're humming and when you're riding on the seat of your pants and when you're, um, the words are really flowing. And it's so much harder to get up the next day and do some more and get up the next day and do some more. And, and, and I also don't believe in the, you have to write every day thing. Some people say write every day that works for some people. And some people are working three jobs and you can't write every day. I think it's like incredibly arrogant to think that someone has to write every day to be a writer. Um, yeah. yeah uh, I, I, and I, and I know some of my friends prescribe to that idea. So I just call them arrogant, but I said what I said. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, I think just uh, write, finish what you start is so much more important than write every day um, in my, in my book. And it was great advice as you said before about taking creative writing classes. Yeah. Cause I think, I think writing a lot of people like to think of it as like the muse and it's like abstract thing that can't be taught. And to a certain extent, like maybe imagination can't be taught, but uh, writing is very much a skill like any other skill that you get better at as you do. And you can be, you can learn it. Like, you learn by reading and you learn by writing. So, and you learn by, you can learn by other methods where people are teaching you craft and stuff like that. So yeah, especially if you're young people, especially if there's teens listening, take those classes. Cool. Uh, yeah, I think you're muted, James. You're, James, you're I'm muted. muted myself. Yeah. I'm muted. <laughs> I'll, I'll edit that later. Um, I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a really great honor to, to speak to you because I'm, I'm a really big fan of your work. I love your writing and your style and there's something very relatable uh, to me about it. So thank you so much for coming on and being so gracious with your time. Well, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you both so much and thank you so much uh, for all your support and everything. Yeah. It means, it means a lot. So it was, it was great for me to get to talk to you guys. Uh, yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's very, very Read appreciated. Um, and this will be going, do you know when this will go up? Um, I'm going to probably get it up within a day or two. So it'll okay, cool. be, it'll be before well, the official release of clown. And perfect. Too, yeah. So, so if, yeah. Buy these books, people. Thank you. <laughs> I, 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 was, I had such a great time talking to you guys. It was, this is really, uh, really special. So thank you so much. You're welcome. So please go check out clown in a cornfield. If you haven't read it. Awesome book. Um, if you have time, by the time this comes up, I mean, try to pre-order clown in a cornfield too. It might be a, a little bit late, but either way, get it as soon as it comes out and if you like them please check out um any of adam caesar's like independent works i really love them especially the summer job and the first one you expect um again thank you so much for your time thank and you when guys. you 
when you read Clown in the Cornfield, you're going to think there's no way he can improve on this, but he does. So check out part two. And the official Thank release you. is the 23rd, right? But it's it's kind of out. Yeah, the 23rd, now. but for like some retailers, like most Bars & Noble just have it now. But um, but yeah, order it online, then it'll it'll get to you hopefully the day or two uh, of release. So uh, thank you guys so much. This is great. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, Adam. Take care. Bye, guys. That was a fun interview. I really hope you enjoyed it. I'm a really big Adam Caesar fan. We got to address a couple things. So sorry that we haven't been doing podcasts as much lately. We've been very busy and we've updated you from time to time on The Dead Place, which is um, Michael Pickles' uh, newest film project that I'm also uh, that I'm producing with him. And uh, that's been taking up so much of our time that we don't have it in us to like do a podcast every week. But for big ones like this, we're going to keep it going. And in the future, we're going to start picking back up at a normal pace. It's just for now, we're um, slowing down just a little bit. We're not disappearing. We're just slowing down and saving the podcast for bigger events like the like this particular interview. And uh, since we last updated everybody on the dead pace, we have nine cast members cast. The best cast I have ever assembled. You will not believe how phenomenal these people are. And we only picked these nine cast members because James and I watched their uh, audition tapes and we were immediately, that's that character. Very talented, very natural. It's a mix of uh, veterans that we've worked with over the years and new up and coming kids from 13 to 18 to early 20s. So it's it's uh, really going to be a great project. 15 years in the making. We already filmed the... Uh, crowdfunding video part uh, part of the crowdfunding video the crowdfunding campaign starts in october and uh, one of the main cast members we want we'd like to announce if you haven't seen it on our page david howard thornton is our horror villain the new kid if you don't know david howard thornton he is art the clown from terrifier and he's on that shirt right there that michael is wearing and that um, adam cedar just mentioned and noticed on the podcast too so and go go back and listen to him on the podcast. We uh we interviewed him a while back. Episode sixty seven. Episode sixty seven is our interview with David Howard Thornton. If you're uh, interested in hearing that, but yes, he's he playing the villain in the film, and I think it's exciting because he, he's become kind of a modern horror icon, and I think social media has helped kind of spread the word of Art the Clown and all of like the appreciation groups that he has on Facebook and social media. And he's most famous for being a mime, a silent, uh, a, a silent, but very, very terrifying. Obviously, that's why they call him the terrifier, a silent character. And um, he's an actor who's very dedicated to kind of like his vocal performances. And if you've ever heard his Joker impression, he does like a spot on almost like Mark Hamill-esque, Mark Hamill-esque version of the Joker and um this is the first time as a villain he's been had speaking roles and more of like supporting roles in other movies but this will be the first role as a villain where he's speaking so we're really excited to be kind of introducing that element and trying to give another side to this actor another side because he is great silent he's great with just the miming and terrifying you silently but we hope to exploit things that you don't really get in terrifier and we give him a lot to do in this one as far as being menacing and and the the practical makeup effects. I'm not going to give anything away, but wait till you see it. <laughs> you think, oh, 
wait till you see <laughs> like I'm so so excited for it to keep up with all of the updates that we have for the dead place follow us on all of our social media because it has been mentioned oh. on every platform that we that we've done we've discussed it on every platform so if you follow us on facebook which is facebook.com slash pickles horror show you're still going to get all of our regular content all our news all our updates um horror anniversaries retrospectives but you'll also be updated on the project on a regular basis. Follow us on Instagram. Um, what is the Instagram? Again, I always forget this one. Instagram, uh, The Horror Show Pictures. The Horror Show Pictures on Instagram. Follow us on the TikTok page that I run, which is at Horror Show Official, where um, I post podcast clips and I discuss various things going on and I try to keep up with the current horror news and um, you know, just do little specials of things that I do on TikTok. Um, I've mentioned I have a TikTok video talking about the dead place right now, and I'm going to keep using that platform to update you on what's going on. So follow us on any platform and you'll be able to follow the progress of the film. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love what we do. We couldn't do this without you. We're very excited for the future and all the things that we have going on and interviews like this and interviews on our last podcast, which was a while ago now, like the Adams family makes all of this so much fun. and so, so worthwhile. So we really hope you enjoyed our interview with Adam Caesar. There'll be links to everything that we do you can find the links to our social media uh, in our description. And for this episode, we'll give you some links to where you could find Adam, pa Adam Caesar's YouTube channel and uh, where you could purchase his books, his novels and novellas and short story collections. I'll be reading all of it after reading these two books. A clown in a cornfield one and two. Till next week, folks. Happy Happy Horror. horror.